0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Talk about focus. Florida native Jennifer Tepper knew from a very early age that she was Broadway bound. At nine, she went to theater summer camp, got a part in Annie, loved the experience. In fact, when asked what she wanted to be when she grew up, Jennifer would answer, I want to be the theater. Not in the theater. She wanted to live and breathe Broadway. And to that end, she'd devour Playbill magazines, listen endlessly to musical cast albums, circling shows she'd see once she got to the Big Apple. Well, she did get to the Big Apple, coming to New York City at 18 to attend New York University. Jennifer saw musical after musical. She even showed up at restaurants, bars, and stores she says she knew were filled with the footsteps of people who had built a theatrical legacy. Jennifer parlayed that passion into a career, working for Broadway and Off-Broadway producers and directors. And today, this 30-something is a musical theater historian, writer, and producer. Since 2013, Jennifer has been the director of programming at Feinstein's 54 Below, the Broadway supper club and concert venue. She also happens to be the author of the Untold Stories of Broadway book series, Volume 3, released recently. It examines legendary Broadway theaters, those still operating, and those whose lights have been dimmed. Jennifer has interviewed more than 250 theater professionals, actors, directors, producers, stagehands, writers, musicians, designers, ushers, you name it. So, Jennifer, welcome, and thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. What an introduction. And I say the same
0: <laughs> thing to women. You make mention of that. I didn't make it up. Oh,
1: well, it's an honor to even just, you know, be here and hear it. Wow. Oh, <laughs> well,
0: good. Now, when you're ever feeling down, play the intro over again. That's a good idea. So now it's the time for me to interview you. And I want to ask, first off, was it one particular moment, event, experience that sparked this love of theater in the young Jennifer?
1: You know, what's funny is it was from the beginning. It was being an Annie at summer camp and really being immersed in theater for the first time. Um, but I grew up in a community of, it, you know, Boca Raton, Florida is filled with snowbirds um, who really want to go to the theater. And thus, there are a lot of good regional theaters, high school theaters, touring houses um, because that community exists. So I was lucky to be there for that. And the high school that I was going to um, put on like terrific professional level shows. So I was exposed to those as well. And between that and summer camp, it really just started hitting me like this is the thing I want to be part of professionally.
0: But people also don't suffer fools gladly, whether it's high school or summer camp. Obviously, you had to have some talent.
1: (laughs) You know what was funny was um, I liked being in the shows and I liked performing. And, you know, as a nine-year-old, even as like a 14-year-old, you can perform in shows, but there's not a lot of opportunity to, you know, direct or write the show (laughs) or, or even, you know, further than that, be like a, you know, path that would lead to company managing or being an agent. So a lot of what I ended up later doing in my books was sharing what other jobs in the theater are with young people who might want to do them, but not know about them, not be able to do them. And I did, I mean, you know, I think my talent lied in just like my knowledge of theater. Or your enthusiasm. And my enthusiasm, um, which can be misconstrued as like this person. And you know, I liked performing, I was okay at it, but I knew it was not going to be a professional career. Mm -hmm. Um, But by the time I was a teenager, I was just like educating my friends on musicals and saying like, you know, let's sit around and talk about Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnett kind of thing. (laughs) Um, So I knew that the talent was in another area um, that wasn't performing and I had to see. That out. But you have to
0: acknowledge, don't you, that that's a little on the unusual side in terms (laughs) of,
1: no, and that's not
0: being judgmental. It's more how fabulous for you to know or
1: to be so sure of what it was. That you were passionate about. Thank you. Yeah, I think that I just wanted to know everything about theater, and I wanted to be part of making it happen in a way that used that knowledge. So, you know, it was fun to get to teach myself about theater from afar and say, I don't know exactly what my job is going to be when I get to New York, but it's going to involve this historic knowledge and also the knowledge of how shows get programmed and produced today.
0: Was your visit to New York going to
1: be a freshman at NYU the first time you came to the city? You know, I visited New York three times before I ever moved here, which is a lot, and I was lucky and also not a lot simultaneously because a lot of people, I'm always jealous of people who like grew up in Long Island or New Jersey and got Don't to come be. into the city. Don't be. <laughs> um, but those those trips were very um, significant and impactful to me and I came up three times and each time it was let's pack in as many shows as possible but by the time of my first visit I already had like you know dozens and dozens of cast albums memorized so it wasn't like I was exposed to the theater for the first time through seeing it. It was mm-hmm. really learning about it from afar.
0: So it was musical theater as a to, quote, dramatic theater?
1: It was definitely musical theater. Um, I love plays and I love seeing plays, but I don't quite have the knowledge base or the amount of experience and interest yet. (laughs) You know, you never know when that might change. Did you act, by the way, in college? You know, I was close to film and television because I majored in dramatic writing at Tisch School of the Arts. And I did that because I loved theater and I loved writing and I knew I wanted to do something that wasn't performance based, but that was in the theater. Um, And I didn't feel like there was a perfect major for me. It was really difficult because I knew that if I did something like dramatic criticism, you know, I wasn't interested in criticism. It wasn't that end of writing. Um, And also you never are in an actual theater. So it was what, the, what do you mean
0: you're never in an actual theater? If you major to be in, a
1: critic? in dramatic criticism at NYU, it's a very academic um, major. Oh, it's oh a I very, see you know, the only the only paths at NYU and at most schools are either performance-based or something else specific that um, didn't lend itself to what I wanted to do. So I tried to pick the closest thing, which ended up being dramatic writing. Um, and, you know, everyone in that department wants to do playwriting, screenwriting, TV writing, and I wanted to be a theater historian and work in producing. So I ended up creating my own major to a degree, and it, it was a really positive thing because um, – you know i had the curriculum i had and then i you know took all kinds of classes outside of my major i was able to have a lot of internships that supplemented the learning and i kept teaching myself um the way i always had been where did theater history come from? You know, I was so fascinated by the fact that I would sit as, you know, a kid with these albums and that they all had these huge stories inside of them, not just like the story of, you know, I was holding Annie and it was the plot of Annie, but also like what year did this come out? Who wrote it? How did it happen? I was always so fascinated by like the full context of each musical. And it, it just expanded by, you know, getting it through these albums where I wasn't in New York. I didn't know that something ran 10 performances or ran for six years. To me, they were all just these albums, and I would treat them equally and kind of learn about them. And I think it really was growing up so far away from, like, Broadway that made me want to learn about it and put on that historian cap.
0: And when you went to school here, you must have spent most of your free (laughs) time— on Broadway.
1: Yeah, NYU is lucky enough to get some free tickets for students and every time we would get free tickets to a particular show especially if it was something new I would take as many as I could and I would go see a show like six times during previews and why take notes. Why am I notes. not
0: surprised?
1: Yeah, it was as educational as class as like taking notes on what was changing and what was going on in the theater and this song was cut and why did this character change um, and that was like what I had read about in books but I was watching it and again it was you know class and it was also getting actually learned from New York City.
0: Did you spend your summers here? two in college, or did you go back home? And I asked that, meeting, did you get internships?
1: Yeah, you know, um, I had one fun summer in Boca as a hostess at a restaurant, but other than that, I did internships every summer. And I interned at the York Theater, um, which does new musicals, and they do underappreciated musicals of the past. And I interned at the Rodgers and Hammerstein Organization, which licenses musicals and maintains legacies in a lot of other ways. And I interned with the writers of the musical title of show, um, which actually led to my first professional job, which was as the director's assistant on that. That show when it moved to Broadway.
0: And that was as soon as you got out of school?
1: It was amazing timing because I was their intern during my senior year of college and a little bit during the summer. And then as soon as you know the show went to Broadway, literally the summer after I graduated. So it was very good timing. <laughs> and then what happened to you? You know, what was interesting was I loved being a director's assistant. I thought that it taught me so much and I loved being... And what does that mean? A director's assistant, you know, in the jobs that I had with title of show and ended up having later, I did everything from, you know, taking notes for the director during a performance to taking my own notes and giving those to actors to maintaining certain elements of the production, like with various departments, the design departments. It's just kind of being the director's second in command for whatever they're doing. Um, But it was a lot of taking notes for the director. Things like, you know, him saying, do you understand this moment from House Left and running over to House Left and seeing what was happening. So, you know, it's kind of being there, you know, secondhand. But... um, I I, cook and bottle washer. Yes. I love that reference. Um, I... I really liked that and I liked how much I learned from the rehearsal room and from being in a theater with a show but I didn't exactly want to be a director and I had the feeling that I wanted to get into a producer's office and be in that environment but again doing exactly what I wasn't wasn't sure I was open to any number of things which actually can be harder because you're not going I'm pursuing this exact path but because I had been the director's assistant on title of show the next job I had was as another director's assistant um, Michael Greif who's the director of Dear Evan Hansen now and Rent and Next to Normal Um, I was his assistant on a number of shows, and that was really educational. And then I spent about two years doing so many freelance theater jobs, like assisting on a theater documentary and, you know, PAing a workshop and assisting a producer for two weeks and doing a ton of freelance stuff before I ended up having my first like full time real theater office job.
0: So you were your own business. You didn't mm-hmm. work for someone, you were a freelancer. Did your job end when the show closed?
1: With a lot of jobs that I got, I honestly would end up working on jobs for a week or two weeks with the two directors assistant the three directors assistant main jobs I had yeah my job basically was over when the show opened almost uh-huh. and then as soon as I started taking these like freelance jobs it was interesting because I got to be in you know 20 different rehearsal rooms and I was also babysitting and doing whatever you do to stay afloat in the city um tutoring and also just having these amazing experiences with these like legendary theater professionals for a week and then it was over so I ended up being able to sneak into sneak, not literally, but into a lot of really amazing rehearsal rooms and onto projects. Uh, And then after that, I worked for Ken Davenport for three years as his, director of marketing and communications on a number of Broadway and off-Broadway shows.
0: I'm likening this, as I'm listening to you, to, in a sense, auditioning. (laughs) It was. And that must be on some level, while it can be exhilarating, it can also be incredibly stressful.
1: Well, what was funny about those two years was the right full-time job didn't come along, and it was frustrating. But because of that, I ended up writing a lot of my own stuff So during that time and producing a lot of my own small shows and like collaborating with people for the first time that I've, you know, maintained collaborations with till today and beyond. Um, So it really was important to have those years of like kind of struggle, but where all those roots are formed and take shape you were never discouraged. I definitely was, but not in a way where I was like, I'll never work in the theater. I can't do this forever. I kind of always knew that it was temporary and that it was difficult to, you know, maintain that freelance path. But I kind of knew that at some point it would figure itself out and I would end up in the right place permanently. Um, And I also knew from studying theater so long that people in the theater don't have one job that they get, you know, when they're 22 and keep it. It's such a winding road Mm -hmm. in in the arts, not even just in theater. Well, there's
0: a lot of fluidity.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of... And flexibility. Yeah, and there's also a lot of not being able to, you know, go on a path directly up without going side to side, like, uh, that I think is different from other industries. So, you know, it was, I had a very encouraging family, and I knew that it was temporary and that I was learning a lot. And honestly, like, I started producing my own concert series and writing my own stuff that eventually led to, you know, getting a book deal years later. So everything I do now was kind of, the seeds were planted during those years.
0: But producing your own concert series, for example, also means that you have to raise money.
1: You know, the concert series that I started doing during that time were these very like small events that generally paid for themselves. Um, And I learned how to like create a budget for a show based on what you would make from ticket sales. And I learned how to, you know, I was an assistant producer on several larger shows where we did raise money. And I was part of that. So you were a sponge, weren't you? Process? Definitely a sponge. Yeah. And it was at all different levels. I started kind of being in the room for producing in a 80-seat theater and also in a 500-seat theater and just learning the whole process. So by the time I got into a producer's office, I had a lot of you know hands-on experience.
0: I say this to so many of the women I interview, and sometimes I just say, Sandy, move the needle. But there is this overriding theme in conversations with creative women. The women all have this strong sense of self, whether their parents, friends, family, whatever, were very encouraging or not, that they just... I'm embarking on this path, and it's going to work for me.
1: You know what's been interesting now, um, as like an author, having interviewed so many women, I find the same thing. Like women in the theater, you have to be so headstrong to get where you're going. They all do have this extraordinary sense of self.
0: Except that you can also be shot down. Yeah. That's the contrast for something like this. You know, it's somebody sort of praising you one day and another day just being so dismissive when you go out on an audition. Yeah. and you I take think, your clothes I mean, off, man, for that kind of right. stuff.
1: Rejection is part of every job in the theater um, from auditioning to, you know, producing a show and getting a terrible review or closing after two weeks, there's always this sense of nothing you do is ever permanent. And so you're setting yourself up to, you know, be judged each time. And you have to have a really strong sense of like who you are and what you're creating in order to make that your job.
0: And also have, I guess, infinite patience.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes. So then what
0: happens after your experience with Ken Davenport, who you said was a producer?
1: He's a producer. You know, I worked on the Broadway revival of Godspell. I worked on uh, the Scottish play with Alan Cummings. Um, we worked on Avenue Q, all these different shows. Um, and I worked for him in a marketing capacity, but he was producing the shows we were doing. So in a way, you know, I was in the office working on everything from dealing with investors to group sales to creative development to general management. He did everything and he does everything in-house. So essentially, I Nothing was Nothing's formed out,
0: you mean. Yeah, mm-hmm. like
1: with, in comparison to other pr- producing offices, there's a lot of stuff in-house. So I was able to work hands-on with so many different departments on a Broadway show that were sitting two feet away from me. In a way that was extremely, you know, exciting and helpful. So a lot of what I was doing on my own was producing concerts um, and smaller, working on smaller shows in a, a producing capacity. And I got asked to become the director of programming at 54 Below. Okay. Um, and how did that happen? happen. Yeah. I mean,
0: that's big. That's really big. Yeah. And this happened in 2013?
1: Yes. Explain for people who don't know about this supper club and concert venue. It's basically a destination for Broadway stars to do solo concerts, um, musicals in concert, nights of songwriters, both established and emerging, all different kinds of basically musical programming. And I really got the job, which was crazy, not because I had years of experience working for a Broadway producer, um, but because I had been producing my own concerts and I produced something at 54 Below when it first opened in 2012. And the owners of the club, who are Broadway producers, for 30 years in partnership, saw what I did, and they were looking for a new programming director, and they thought, oh, we should talk to the woman who did that. We liked her, Um, at which point we spoke, and they learned all my other experiences. But it was really just a short-term producing weekend that I you know, did some events at the venue that led to my job there. And you're how old then? How old was I in 2013? I am 30, so... I was, yeah. That's <laughs> I
0: mean, that's yeah. almost unheard of. Yeah, it was really... I mean, we're not talking about, let's put on a play in someone's backyard in Des Moines. Yeah, You know, this is smack in the middle of midtown Manhattan. And everybody who's into the theater knows about this venue.
1: I was extremely honored to be put in the position, and not even just honored in a, like, I'm flattered that I was thought of, but just literally honored to be programming, you know, a venue that's in Times Square, where I, you know, worshiped all of these shows and theaters. Were you nervous? Were you scared? You know, I don't think She's that occurred say no. to me. I just, no. <laughs> it didn't occur to me. I, I don't I don't get nervous about work in that way. I just go like, if if I do feel like, oh my God, how am I ever gonna do this or with any project? Mm-hmm. You just break it down, you just start doing it. Because the thing was that it had only been open for a little while and they'd been doing an amazing job of programming, you know, these big stars. You know, I went to see Ben Vereen and Patty Lapone there before I, you know, even had an inkling I would work there. But I was so excited at the idea that I, you know, brought to the table, which was diversifying the programming as far as bringing in Broadway stars who are just starting out and having people who'd never done a cabaret show before and doing musicals in concert and doing like more reunions of shows. Did they want to expand their audience? Was that part of what your. Job was? It was wanting to expand the audience, but really, I think when they opened it, there's nothing like 54 Below. It's extremely unique in terms of its structure internally and what, you know, it's doing. And they opened the club thinking, we'll do one show a week. We'll have this Barbara Cook, we'll have Ben Vereen, we'll run for a week and it'll be one person. And after being open for a little while, they realized, no, we have to have three shows a night. We have to have a bunch of different kinds of shows in order to get different demographics in because we can't keep going to the same one. They realized a lot of things very quickly and it was. Just a matter of figuring out how to fill that calendar and program shows that could reach all different corners of the theater audience. And we do, we have 16 shows a week. We're never dark for a day of the year. Every week i 'm programming sixteen shows for the future, so that we can have sixteen shows that week holy cow it 's a great how volume did you find of, time to come here <laughs> <laughs> you know I will say after three years we 've always had like a great team, so mm-hmm. that 's wonderful. but after three years, there is kind of a great system in place so that i 'm able to um, manage how much how many artists we have at any given time
0: you know there 's something that 's been bothering me for a long time, and I discussed this with a woman who I interviewed not too long ago, who happens to be an opera singer. And I mentioned to her, and I'm going to say it to you as well, that when I go to the theater, for example, and I look around, I'm basically seeing me. Mm -hmm. Hamilton, Spamalot, what's the other one? Uh, The Book of Mormon Mm -hmm. obviously can draw in a younger audience. But Mm -hmm. I said to her, I'm nervous about who's going to replace me at the Metropolitan Opera and who's going to replace me at the New York Philharmonic as well as the theater. And she said, well, believe it or not, there are a lot of very small you know opera venues that are opening up but you know this is not an inexpensive venture mm-hmm. I know I have two sons and yeah. they don't go to the theater and when you're talking about expanding demographics mm-hmm. as in 54 below are you noticing that you're having diversity
1: yeah you know what's exciting about what that is and speaks to that is you know because we do a 7 p.m and 9 30 and an 11 30 on a lot of nights I'm programming it so that the seven is designed for the, for the audience for the, that wants to come at seven Well, that's
0: my age group yeah I guess. it's mm-hmm. it's not
1: just people who want to see um you know a higher ticket price act. It's people who really want to dine. It's, it's all of these factors that go into how we program the venue. But a lot of nights, you know, I took my mom. My mom's favorite memory of the venue is we saw Five-ish Finkel, who passed away last year, which was very sad. We saw him at seven with like this older Jewish crowd. And then we stayed and we saw the Skivvies, which the Skivvies are this act they sell out all over America. They sold out our venue like dozens of times. And they're these two Broadway actors who perform stripped down arrangements of songs in their underwear. <laughs> um, with different Broadway guests in their underwear. And it's not quite, I mean, it's risque, but not quite as it's not. You know, some people mm-hmm. will come in pajamas. But you saw the entire audience kind of switch over. But what was so great about it was that the Skivvies love 5 Finkel, and they had come to his show, and he stayed for a bit of theirs as well. So you get this exchange of generations, and you also are able to, like, embrace both. And we certainly also have programming, you know, we do 1776 every July 4th and you always see young people and older people and you know all different So you're not worried? No I get less worried all the time. I think that especially even what's going on in New York theater right now you know I go to Dear Evan Hansen and I see dozens of young people and as soon as it's a little less expensive once it's been running for a while it'll be even more and Waitress and these things that are reaching different audiences um, and younger people who want their kind of music to be part of that equation. I see it getting better and better.
0: So now take me to the fact that you have written these three tomes about Broadway. How come?
1: So what was interesting was one of the first concert series I ever produced, it's called If It Only Even Runs a Minute. We've been doing these since 2010. And they basically are these evenings that celebrate underappreciated musicals through people who were part of them, actors, writers, directors, telling stories about being part of these shows, singing a song that they originated, um, and us sharing like stories and photos and all this stuff. And so I had been doing this for a little while when my now book publisher came to see one and said this is fascinating, the way that you put this history on stage and the way that you've written all these anecdotes. Do you want to pitch us a book? Because she was starting this arts and entertainment publishing company at the time. And I had always thought I would write a book someday. But this, again, I was, you know, 26. And I didn't think I was going to write it when I was 26. I thought I was going to wait to gather a lot more knowledge. And when she said that, I thought, you know, since I started working on Broadway and exploring these historic houses, I have had this idea in my head of kind of like, you know, I'm so inspired by At This Theater, where you Get to open the playbill and see what else had been at the theater, but making that personal the way that the concert series I was doing was and having people's actual memories and stories connect the history of each theater. So I pitched that and that ended up becoming the Untold Stories of Broadway. Did you ever imagine that it was going to be a series? No. We thought, oh, we'll do all 40 theaters in one book. And then as soon as I started interviewing people, I thought there's going to be no way to do more than eight theaters in each book because of the volume of stories you have to share to properly commemorate each theater. These books are only Broadway, meaning they're not all Broadway. Yes. So there's forty Broadway theaters, soon to be forty one, and each that are up and running. Yes. Okay. And each book takes seven of the currently running theaters and one lost theater or demolished theater. And it takes you through their history, through people's stories I've interviewed. So there'll eventually be six books. Although things can yeah. change, can't yeah. they? I mean theaters in the theaters, Yeah, <laughs> or they can close. Well what's been fascinating is kind of to learn, oh, I would love to write about this theater. There's no one who could talk to me because it closed in nineteen forty and you know there's mm-hmm. no one around. So mm-hmm. kind Kind of going. Oh, this is we have to capture these stories. And the third book has you know the St. James, it has the Belasco. So with each book, I dive into like these specific theaters stories, which has been really nice to like focus on eight at a time.
0: So you have interviewed very bold face names for your books. Yes. I so wanted to
1: drop a few <laughs> and
0: explain what they had to share.
1: Sure. Um. You know, Hal Prince. Interviewing him was just you know. Oh, the penultimate producer. <laughs> the yeah, best director. thing of my life. Interviewing him in his office at Rockefeller Center. That I. I had heard stories about for years of Sondheim playing songs for him in that office. It Just the idea of talking to him, and he just, you know, he created the American Musical Theater. music the institution. Things like that. But also, you know, what's been fun is I interviewed Lin-Manuel Miranda, who I knew because the title of show was being produced in the same office as In the Heights, kind of at the same time. So That was I'd, his first Broadway Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and I'd known him for a while. And obviously, you know, I love how he's such a theater nerd, and I loved my interview with him and the material that's ended up in the books. But it takes on this resonance, um, you know, as the years go by, because I interviewed him so much about the Richard Rodgers, where In the Heights was. And of course, Hamilton is there now. So you get this perspective when you look at that. And another favorite one that's also a bold face name, Jason Alexander, who I always ask everybody if there's a Broadway theater they would want to perform in that they haven't yet. And he said the court, he just described why the court, which, you know, is kind of off the beaten path. It's like, he called it the Bermuda Triangle of the Broadway theaters. He was hilarious about it, as you would expect. And then like, six months later, he ended up doing Fish in the Dark at the court. And he won a Tony Award before Seinfeld ever happened. Um, His stories are amazing, but also just getting these stories from people and then they kind of, as time goes on, they become meaningful in different ways. Well, you've
0: also interviewed clearly, like I mentioned, whether somebody is on the stage, you know, before an audience, it's the people behind the stage too who are so critical to uh, keeping Broadway alive.
1: Yeah, and one of my favorite things, I mean, speaking of women in the theater, has been interviewing women who have behind-the-scenes jobs. And that we don't al- sometimes we do but we don't always talk about you know what was the unique thing about being a woman in this profession but it always somehow comes out Um and there have been women I've interviewed in behind the scenes positions who have talked about most of the time when they're doing their job nine out of the ten other people doing it are male and what kind of you know how that's Impact. impacted their mm-hmm. career mm-hmm. Uh, so that's been really interesting you know the more I've done the book the more social issues political issues that you know have to do with our lives emerge and you see how they intersect with the theater
0: just off the top of my head. I think of Julie Taymor and I think of Susan Stroman, but more than that, I'm not sure I could name female directors. I mean, what else is new?
1: Why? What's interesting, like producers create their own opportunities a lot of the time. Producers say, I want to do this. I'm going to raise money. I'm going to ally myself with other producers. It's more of, it's able to be more of a, no one needs to hand you that opportunity to a degree. Whereas being a writer or a director, my personal, I mean, to simplify it, and it is very complicated, but a lot of these jobs in the theater just require all round the clock focus. You know, you can't do anything else. And I think that dissuades women from being able to do the jobs a lot of the time because they go, oh, I want to have a family or I want to make sure I have even just like another job that's more steady. Steady. There's a certain degree of like, you know, to be a Broadway writer. A lot of them, they spend 20 years before they get a Broadway show. So to a certain degree, I think that is part of the reason for it. But another part of the reason is just that it takes so long for you know it to change. A lot of the behind the scenes positions, I think people interview and if a woman came in and wanted to do it, they would hire a woman. But women don't go, oh, I could be a stagehand because they don't see it. You know, it's not what is existing now. So mm-hmm. it's tricky. It's really interesting to talk to people who really are on the front lines of that.
0: So where are you going?
1: There's a lot of exciting stuff I'm working on right now that's very hands-on at 54 Below. Right now, I'm producing this musical that's, there are only seven Broadway musicals that have ever closed in Broadway previews without ever opening over oh, the years. Yeah, only yeah. seven. Oh, is that a loss of <laughs> dollars and cents, right? Yeah. <gasps> um, and there's one that, in particular, there's a few, but there's one that I've always been fascinated by um, called Rachel Lily Rosenbloom and Don't You Ever Forget It. <laughs> and um, it closed in 1973, and we're doing it at 54 Below for the first time since it closed in previews. And it's this fascinating disco musical. It was basically Broadway's first disco musical, and um, it starred Ellen Green, and it was written by Paul Jabara, who went on to write Last Dance and It's Raining Men. So it has this like fascinating score. Mm-hmm. It's really fun, um, and it has a lot to offer. And we're, you know, just putting it together from all different scripts and versions of demos from 73.
0: So what happens on stage is the entire musical is quote, acted out?
1: Kind of. Well, what I love about it is that we do these 75-minute concert versions, with which something like this um, really lends itself to kind of getting a good taste of the material and, you know, you hear basically a highlights version of the score, but we do it so that you, you know, you know what the show is about. You hear enough dialogue and you learn enough about the characters to get an idea of it. And it's basically like, you know, a lot of the stuff we've done has gone on to actually, you know, be produced in full productions or to, if it's something that exists, to be revived more because of the attention it's gotten. Um, But with something like this, you know, our goal is just to get people to hear it for the first time ever. So it should be interesting to put it together with that in mind. Do you sometimes feel like you died and went to heaven? (laughs) Definitely. Like, I actually do. A lot of the times, you know, when we have artists at 54 Below who I just grew up worshiping, and luckily, you know, my family loves the theater. None of them worked in the theater or anything, but they all love it so that I can go, oh, my God, you'll never get to see the building. And you get this kind of reality check with people who've known you forever where they were like, oh, my God, you would have died. You would have, like, you know, Mm -hmm. passed out if you knew this was happening. So it's nice to have those, like, connections to draw you back to, uh, you know, we had Alice Ripley and. Emily Skinner doing a duo show at 54 Below. And my mom was just like, oh my God, you never stopped playing their CDs. Like that was just constant. I loved them so much. So you
0: live in the dream. It's
1: it's so exciting. And then they did a CD at 54 Below and I got to write the liner notes for it. And that was like my pinch me moment of the year where you just go, this is full circle.
0: I guess the world really is your oyster. And I don't want (laughs) to keep harping on the fact that you're young, but you're young. And so that just bodes so well for you.
1: Thanks. I hope that our generation of theater... People and theater makers really like take things into their own hands and do that.
0: Well, Jennifer, our time's up. It thank went you so, so much fast. for having me. Oh <laughs> gosh, you know, it certainly was my pleasure. Thank you so much for doing what you do, and your enthusiasm and your joy and your passion are all very contagious. Thank you for what you do, and thank you for having me. Totally my pleasure. <laughs> Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.